Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Amsterdam Talk Season 4, Episode 1. Today, I bring you established author who has great programs. Is Renew, correct? Renault. Renault. How you mm -hmm. doing, Renault? How are you? I'm doing good. It's just uh, having, just living the life out here. <laughs> Sunny California. Hey, I figured, yeah, you're over in sunny California, so yeah. it's, it's, it's dark over here on the East Coast. Yeah. So we bring you in, um, so you want to talk about the seven core emotions, you know, identified as affected by neuroscience? Right, yeah. It's, I've, I've spent my whole life uh, just interested, fascinated with emotions. I started out as a kid raising, you know, my parents come from farming backgrounds, so we had chickens, rabbits, and ducks and you know you know parrot all kinds of stuff and i've always been fascinated with emotions got involved with uh, animal behavior in my uh, uh degree work in biology then i switched over to counseling and i was a marriage family therapist for 20 years working with anxiety disorders and then switched over to uh, teaching at a local college but uh, all the time just keep following the research what's been going on and things that discover and in this since the last 20 years you know certain research has shifted from what they call cognitive uh, psychology which is you know how you think uh, memory uh, vision that type of stuff and the study of emotions has actually uh, taken on a, a much more uh, in-depth study uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting how things research shifts from one little thing to another and right now emotions are now starting to get really uh, explored a lot more so why is it being explored a lot more than it was? I mean, it's getting explored a lot more today than it was back then. It's just the way things go. When I first started, I was working with panic disorder. And uh, in fact, if you go back and look at the research, you know, the first thing that they started working with was schizophrenia. And then right. they used to not have anything they could do to help people. And then in the 50s, they found a couple drugs, Malarel and Stelazine, that actually made a difference. And that's when all of the uh, biologists said, whoa, Chemicals actually affect the brain. So that's when research started. Uh, depression was the big thing. Then panic disorder became the big thing. It's kind of like a, when a new field gets uh, discovered and all the money goes there for a while and then something else comes up and that becomes the trend. Kind of like fashion, you know, like jeans or dresses or whatever, you know, whatever the current fashion is, that's where the money follows. Right. So you say depression became a big thing, but it seems like it's back a big thing now. Well, well, in terms of research, you know, after uh, schizophrenia, the next big thing that was researched was depression. And some of the antidepressants were discovered, the early ones. And then uh, it's kind of like they discovered panic disorder. When I first started working, I went to the local uh, library and in three days I read everything that had been researched on panic disorder. And then mm -hmm. after about two years, that would have been impossible because like the money started hitting and so all kinds of research started starting and they started they're looking for drugs. You know, the, the drug companies is what funds a lot of the research because they're always looking for something they can sell as a pill and give to people. So, and then the different types of, you know, of uh, anxiety disorders, uh, like a, 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 oh, speaking disorder and this and that uh, started becoming important. OCD came out and was, research for a while and and it's just kind of the way research goes uh, it's like right now if you want to do research on uh, any kind of biology research you got to put the word climate change in there right if i want to study the squirrels in central park uh, i won't get any money but if i say i want to study the effects of climate change on the squirrels in central park then i get some money so it's it's all very political how a lot of this stuff works okay so okay before we get into it what are the seven cores 
Well, you know, there's the two that everybody kind of is most familiar with, uh, which is anger and fear. Those have to do with threat, of course. Uh, if the threat is manageable, then I tend to get angry and want to get rid of it. And if it's unmanageable, then I get afraid I want to get away from it. And I use those words in a very broad sense because anger can range from just irritation. You know, you're stepping on my toe, please get off to rage. And anxiety can just range from just apprehension about, uh, I don't know, maybe an interview coming up to, you know, panic because a grizzly bear is chasing me. And uh, two of the ones that are kind of interesting, uh, one is called um, seeking. And if you look at any, in fact, let me back up for just a moment. And okay. these are something that are called affects. And when okay. neuroscience is studying this stuff, they talk about affects. And affect is a wiring in your brain that makes you want to do something. It focuses your attention and your energy in some particular direction. So the simplest affects are what they call sensory affects. Things like heat, cold, pressure. If you've been sitting in that chair too long, you want to move around. If right. you're cold, you want to get hot. And it's like all the other things you think about. You know, The colder you are, the more you think about getting warm, the less you're thinking about everything else. And the next set, of course, are your homeostatic affects, which are, and that's just balance in your body. So like hunger and thirst, salt balance. And the hungrier I get, the more I want to eat something. I don't care about other stuff going on in my life. Right. Uh, and so emotions are kind of the next level up on top of that. And they get shaped a lot by uh, your childhood experience because, again, they get all kind of intertwined with uh, the experiences you've had, uh, what you've been, what you've identified as positive and negative and uh that shapes how they get expressed and that all kind of becomes an automatic response pattern. So the simplest one is something that we call seeking. And uh, you look at any baby, they're out there exploring their environment. They're chewing on right. things. They're, you know, licking their way across the floor. They want, they want to see what's out there. Is it safe? Is it not safe? And uh, that's all mammals. That's true. In fact, when you're still in a room with a bunch of people, somebody opens the door and walks in. First thing everybody does is they look over there to see who is that? And it's, it's an unconscious compulsive action. You know, want, you want to know what's out there. Is it safe? Is it not safe? Uh, and that can, that's the basis, of course, of our curiosity as we get older, too. Uh, another one is something called play, the play circuit. Uh, Panksepp, the guy that did a lot of the initial research in this area, uh, he had rats and he could turn off the thinking part of the brain. They still wanted to play. And right. that's how mammals learn social limits. If you've ever worked with a little kid and you're playing with them, at some point, they do too much. And so you say, hey, that's too much. You know, the, the little gorilla is poking the old uh, gray back, and pretty soon he turns around and says, enough of this, right? And uh, that's how you learn social limits, and that's how you also connect with people. And so as adults, we also like to play. It's, it's kind of an inborn emotional drive for us. So those are two that are kind of interesting. Uh, we have, uh, of course, the lust circuit that becomes uh, active during adolescence. We all know about lust and that whole desire that gets it helps to bind us with other people uh then there's um actually another fear circuit besides danger there's two of them there's the one for danger uh threat and then there's one that in babies we call separation anxiety and uh that's why we miss people that are close to us when they're away from us there's that separation anxiety and again it gets filtered and changed as we get older and then there's a complementary caring circuit and those two kind of are the basis of the love that we develop with people and friendships and that connection we have with others so they're part of our basic wiring and that kind of rounds out the, the seven basic ones which then will develop into what they call the secondary emotions like pride and love and you know those types of things jealousy you know okay so you have those seven cores but then there becomes i'm guessing they're like triggers so well, 
Exactly, exactly. You know, most of your day, uh, your brain is doing so much stuff that you're totally unaware of. Uh, it's it's amazing how unaware we are of what's going on underneath everything. You're walking down the street. Your brain is making associations with are there what, what what's what's safe, what's okay. Uh, if it notices something, like if you're driving a car, a truck goes by, mm -hmm. immediately become aware of it, even though you've been listening right. to the radio. So as you grow up, you get thousands and thousands of associations get made. And whenever there's an association that is particularly important, either in the good or bad way, there's an emotional tag, if you will, gets associated with it. Okay. And then that's how the brain actually sorts information. It uses emotions as a way to sort what's important and what's not important. And so now when those things that are important, either good or bad, enter your environment or you become aware of them, even on an unconscious level, it pops up into your conscious mind and you become consciously aware of it. Um, and of course, the problem is sometimes things that are safe get identified as dangerous. You know, if you right. grow up in a difficult uh, childhood background, uh, you know, maybe you got a, well, a good example would be a lady I worked with whose uh, supervisor uh, looked and sounded a lot like an abusive parent. And so whenever she got around him, she just got a lot of anxiety because he would trigger that those associations with danger right and so she had to learn how to literally desensitize to it uh, and right. you can actually desensitize to anything if you go about it the right way and so the way what we used with her was something that i call what's happening what's real uh, before she would go to meet with him or be around him she would say to herself what's happening is he feels and looks like my parent what's right. true and what's real is he's not He's just, he's just my supervisor. You just want to talk about uh, the, you know, the weekly schedule or some other kind of business related stuff. I'm not going to get yelled at. I'm not going to get beat up. Uh, he's just my supervisor. And over time, she actually desensitized him or they became friends. Okay. But, you know, but speaking outside of the work, desensitization can actually happen basically based on how you grow up. Exactly. You you're just used to it. Yeah, I mean, you go to your first job and you're kind of anxious. Oh, how am I going to do this? But after a while, it's just a job. So you desensitize all that stuff. So it's a part of the natural process that we go through all the time. Uh, driving, a good example. When you first start driving, you're looking at everything. And after a while, you're just sitting there kind of listening to the radio or talking to somebody or thinking about what you're going to watch on TV and you know, not paying a lot of attention because now it's all being done at an unconscious level and, and you're desensitized to, to, to it. Okay, so with these triggers, are they, well, they are emotional. With these emotional triggers, is there anything physical that we could see that be like, this person may be going through this? It's like physical symptoms. Well, certainly anxiety is the big one. Uh, oftentimes, uh, triggers will cause a person to become very anxious, sometimes frightened, sometimes even have uh, panic attacks. And sometimes they're not even aware of what's causing it. Sometimes they are. Uh, and so that's certainly if you're if you're sensitive to uh, what anxiety signs are in a person, you'll notice it. Uh, and again, it's that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> when I worked with panic disorder uh, as a group, those people had very reactive bodies. And if you think about everything that human beings have exists over kind of a, a, what they call the normal curve. You know, there are high, tall people, there are short people, there's average heights. Some people have very reactive bodies and sensitive uh, nervous systems and other people don't. You know, you got to whack them upside the head to get them to notice something. And right. this this group of people had very reactive bodies. So I used to tell them it's kind of like a house where the wiring's not quite up to code. And mm -hmm. so when you got stuff going on, you have these anxiety symptoms and stuff coming up. So, yeah. So 
I, I can usually pick it out when I see somebody doing that, but most people don't, you know, unless they have major anxiety symptoms going on. Okay, so because on one of your articles, you said you can experience chest pain, dizziness, nausea, yep. rapid heart rate, shaking, sweating. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and the easiest way to understand a panic attack is everybody's had a panic attack, but most of the time we haven't identified it like that. Uh, I had one once I remember I was in, in my car driving and I was getting ready to pull out and, and this car T-boned me, right? Uh, and, and, and I'm not, excuse me, he didn't T-bone me, he T-boned the car that was just next to me and he started rolling towards me. And so I slammed on the gas, got out of the way. And as I'm sitting there, you know, your foot's kind of shaking on the gas pedal. You know, you're kind of wondering, you know, what's going on here? Right. But, I knew what was happening. You know, I almost got creamed by this car. And so I just, you know, after a few minutes, I calmed down and moved on. Police, fire people, emergency personnel, they oftentimes will experience that adrenaline rush, which is really all a panic attack is. It's a big adrenaline rush. But in the case of people who have, quote, panic attacks, they don't make the association for what's triggering it. And so it seems to just be coming out of the blue to them. Okay. So it's basically... It's coming out the blue, but it's it's subconsciously been there already. It's there's a trigger. There's a trigger, and oftentimes um, when I talk to people about their initial panic attack, uh, it's a stress reaction. I'll right. I'll be talking to somebody. I'll say, so t tell me what's going on when you had your first panic attack. Well, you know, I was working full time, um, going to school. Um, I was taking care of my dad who was sick and my fiance decided I didn't want to get married. I don't understand, you know, why that I had, I reacted like that. And so when you look at it, you say, Hey, wait a minute, I can figure this one out. That was just a stress reaction. You were doing way too much and your body was just saying, you know, no way that I've had enough here. But then what happens of course, is they do a couple things. They start worrying about it, right? What we call negative anticipation. Uh, Gee, what if it happens again? What if there's something physically wrong with me? What if I can't control it? What if people see me doing it? And so that also causes them to start watching their body and looking for it. And whenever they notice anything that any kind of anxiety that might be attacked, then of course they start the negative self-talk. Oh my gosh, here it comes. Look at what's happening. And of course that now triggers the old fight or fight mechanism and they start self-generating these panic attacks. And that's where it takes on a life of its own is it's a, you know, it's a response to their, um, this, it becomes a conditioned response to their own negative self-talk and reaction to situations. And, and it can be, and it can become associated with specific stuff too, uh, like going to a store or standing in line, any place where they feel like they're trapped and they can't get out. So if you feel trapped, you can't get out and you just go into this fight or flight. Right, so right. Even though you're saying it's anxiety, would you also, since you said in the line of the store, would that correlate with like patients? No, it, it's just simply, it has to do with being trapped. Like like, like an interesting one, sometimes they can't do a uh, left-hand turn because now I'm trapped in the turn lane, right? And what right. if I have a panic attack? So the, the need is I need to be able to escape if this thing comes up. I, I don't okay. want to be any place where I'm going to have a panic attack and I can't get to safety. And that, that can take very individualized forms depending upon the person and how they, you know, view their what's safe and what's not safe okay so you have on on one of your articles and, and it's coming up so mm -hmm. uh we're going to pass halloween we're going straight to thanksgiving you have something called the holiday anxiety oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Expectation. yeah can you explain that to us about how, what you call holiday anxiety 
Yeah, it's, you know, when I had clients, uh, right towards uh, Thanksgiving, they would start to get anxious and, you know, have some symptoms coming, escalating. And then afterwards, it would calm down a little bit. Then as Christmas would come, it would escalate some more. And I'd tell them, you know, you're going to be feeling good around January 15th. And January, middle January would come and they'd start coming back down again. They said, man, you're, you're some kind of a prophet, a wizard. And, and really all it is, is a con, what we call a conditioned response. Uh, it's, if you think about Pavlov's dogs, you know, you ring the bell, uh, you, you, you know, you give them some food, you ring the bell, and pretty soon ringing the bell, they'll start to salivate, right? Right. If you grow up in a crazy family, holiday, Thanksgiving and Christmas is usually when it gets crazier and things escalate. Right. Now, what's going on at that time of the year that doesn't go on any other place as it used to be. Uh, it used to be you'd have Christmas music, Christmas decorations. Uh, and so that becomes associated at an unconscious level with danger. And right. so those things start to appear in the environment at an unconscious level. You're waiting for the other shoe to drop. You're waiting for things to escalate and, and more danger to approach. And so that starts to trigger the anxiety. And that's all it is. It's a simple association. It, it'll be interesting to see what happens since we now start doing Christmas decorations. In fact, I saw stuff up just yesterday. And here, here it is. We aren't even to Halloween and I'm, I'm seeing Santa Claus out there. Because uh, that used to be just associated with December. And so there was a very clear association with those decorations and music and programs and danger. Well, you look at it now as basically, you know, like you said, it's not the same anymore. I mean, Christmas has become just basically a business. I mm -hmm. mean, uh, when you even take in consideration of Black Friday, like stores at least had the decency not to sell on Thursday for Thanksgiving. Now you have people rushing out of their homes in the middle of dinner to go get a TV from Walmart or Target. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, but still, you know, the only time you hear Christmas carols and see the Christmas trees and Santa Claus and all that stuff, it still seems to be the end of the year. So for a lot of people, that still seems to be a trigger for them that, you know, things are going to get crazy again. And what they have to do is go through basically a, a desensitization process and remind themselves that what's happening is all the stuff around me is reminding me of my home that I grew up in. I'm not there anymore. I'm safe. This is a different situation. And along with that, a lot of times they need to come up with new traditions for themselves, decide uh, how can I make this a good time for me? And what are some new things I can do if they have to be around relatives that you know get drunk or whatever uh, plan to do it maybe in the morning before they start drinking or if you got to go out of town get a hotel room so you can escape when things start getting crazy you know don't don't plan to sit there and be with them all the time stuff like that uh, yeah so why do you think i mean we know these holidays are coming you know as far as thanksgiving yeah. and christmas we know when family are really around each other why do people decide if they know this is getting ready to happen, they put so much expectation into it as far as like making unrealistic expectations being they're trying to yeah. accommodate every single person that's coming when you know you can't. Well, if you enjoy being anxious and uptight, then you do that. Uh, if you're wise, you learn that, you know, maybe I don't have to buy into all that stuff. Maybe I can choose what I want to do and I can choose wisely. I, I can I can shop early, for example. I don't I can avoid those last minute rushes. Uh, I can be around people and do things that I enjoy right. rather than doing a bunch of stuff I don't have to do. 
if there's an office party or something work you know work get together uh i can i can arrive late and leave early you know at least while i've showed up right if, if i don't enjoy it right so i can start right. to make plans or how, how can i change my behavior where i don't necessarily have to do all these things that you know maybe i'm, I'm thinking society is saying i should or have to do i don't have to do them well but that's the thing you know the machine now is social media so you feel as though what you're seeing on social media you you're being moved by that machine that you have to do these things when you really don't have to a lot of people are in fact there's a term called fear of missing out that a lot of younger people experience because they see all of this wonderful stuff gone everybody's living a better life than i'm living you know <laughs> and there's a lot of anxiety and anger that is being generated because of it yeah you, you need to you need to be a wise consumer of social media. I mean, I I enjoy aspects of it. When my daughter was studying over in England, we would get together with her on a Zoom meeting every Sunday, and that was great. Uh, but to sit there hours and hours, you know, uh, with your head and all that stuff, uh, yeah, that's not healthy. The, you know, the other thing that's not healthy is a lot of the news uh, streaming that goes on. With anxiety clients, the first thing I would tell them to do is quit watching the evening news. Uh, Nowadays, I would say, you know, go online for 15, 20 minutes, maybe half hour at the most, you know, go to some news sites, consume whatever you want to consume, and then get on with your day, move on. Don't keep your head stuck into this constant, everything is a crisis, everything, you know, the world's falling apart, everything is terrible, oh my gosh, you know, the sky is falling, you know, it's, you know there's only so much you can do, right? Right. So get your head out of it. In fact, there was an interesting study in uh, Europe. And they took uh, their 18 to mid-20s, and they had them reduce their social media, uh, the time they spent, by one hour a day. And okay. they did that for two weeks. And by all the measures, they were much happier afterwards. In fact, that, that maintained for actually several months, because instead of doing social media, they were doing things that were more healthy for themselves. Right. So, um, so they became healthy with themselves. So would you say over in Europe, is Americans behind the curve on that? Well, this was just a study, right, where they took a group of people. That I, I think around the world, wherever you know there's industrialized uh, communities, they're facing the same types of problems. You know, we're, we're like a little kid with a new toy, and uh, we're right. just ODing on it. And it's it's going to take some time to learn to be wise with it. Although I am discouraged when I go into a restaurant and I see both parents on their phone and the kids on their device and nobody's talking to each other. So when, when you look at the, uh, the what this called the science of happiness, um, uh, the positive psychology, the research they've been doing over the last 20 years, uh, the biggest thing for happiness for people is relationship, having some positive relationships where you can be transparent, you can be yourself, you don't have to be afraid of being you know, criticized and stuff. And if you've got people like that in your life, then you do much better in terms of your mental health. And we right. used to have a lot of people like that. We used to have a village, we used to have the block, we used to have extended families. Nowadays, people are very isolated and sometimes they go their entire day without meaningful contact, except for their 500 Facebook friends, right? Which, you know, <laughs> That's not really what we call meaningful contact with people. Yeah, and that can't be healthy right there. That's, that's no. a means no. of communication. Because going back to those circuits, you know, uh, the majority of those circuits have to do with connection. You know, when you talk about the caring circuit, you know, the, 
the uh, the separation anxiety circuit, the play circuit, all that stuff. It all has to do with connecting to other people, and it's a very important part of human beings. And if you don't have healthy connection, uh, you start substituting, which our society does. We substitute excitement for a lot of that stuff. You know, we we substitute power, we substitute money, we substitute experiences uh, for relationship. And those things are good and important, and they they're nice and to have. But you still need that connection with people, which so many people don't have. Right. So, so what is this? What is like if you're with someone and you know, and you're saying, "Hey, I want to spend time," and you're having that connection, but at the whole time, while you know you're giving them your attention, they're just planning your phone. They're planning their phone or dealing with their phone the whole time, back on the social media. Well, they might. They may not have the capacity for the type of connection you want. You know, not everybody is is capable of having a healthy relationship, uh, and that's something that uh, that's just reality. You know, not not everybody has the wiring and the uh, uh, experiences. You know, they have things from the childhood sometimes that prevent them from being able to connect with others at the level you want to. So you you need to be wise with that. You know, and, and let me digress for just a moment. This is very unpopular, what I'm going to say now, but one of the things that I really recommend for singles is do not get into sexual relationships right away because okay. you, need, you need to have some time to evaluate, is this person capable of the type of intimacy and relationship I want, to, want from them? And the trouble is, is once you start getting sexually intimate, then the, the frontal parts of your brain, the thinking part, cuts off, and the emotional stuff starts getting you know more activated. More so with women than men, but with both sexes. And when you look at the MRIs of uh, women uh, uh, who are in just a brand new relationship, the emotional centers are all lit up, and the frontal lobes are kind of quiet. And that's why we say you know you're looking at people through rose-colored glasses. I mean, six months down the line, you look at them and you say, "Who is this person? This is not who I thought they were." Right. And it used to be people would take time, and so they would evaluate, is this person capable of the type of relationship uh, that I want long-term? And we don't do that nowadays, and which is why, again, you see so many you know, broken relationships and so much disharmony and other stuff going on with people. Right, um, because it, it was massive divorce numbers when COVID first hit because people didn't know who they were with. You was trapped yeah. in a house with a person yeah. you didn't know. Yeah. You find that when kids uh, leave the house a lot of times too. You know, if, if, if the couple has spent all their time in work and raising the couples and have not invested in their relationship, okay, the kids are now of age, they leave the house, they look at each other and okay, who are you? <laughs> right, because most, uh, most American families, basically their relationship is just a pass by. I'm seeing you when I get home from work, I'm seeing you basically when we go to sleep, that's really what it is. For a lot, I wouldn't say all, but certainly there's a big, big chunk of families that's true. And again, I, I come from a generation, and, and you tend to surround yourself with people that have a similar background to you. Right. And so all of my friends have been married a long time. We've all kind of had traditional families and stuff. And uh, uh, and it's, it's, and when I work with singles who come from difficult backgrounds, all of their friends come from back, difficult backgrounds. And so right. it's like you kind of it's that self-fulfilling uh, prophecy of looking at everybody else and saying it's it's uh, or what they call the echo chamber. Right. Everything is the same as what I'm seeing here. Oh. 
In fact, when I work with uh, people uh, from difficult backgrounds, one of, one of the things I usually say is you need to identify one or two people from healthy backgrounds and hang around them. Because right. you do not get better reading a book or talking to somebody for an hour once a week. Uh, we are experiential beings. In fact, getting back to those emotions, I, I was mentioning how uh, emotions are the way the brain indexes information. Mm -hmm. That's why experiential learning is more important than book learning. I can read everything there is about driving a car, and I can have a good understanding of all the things you need to do to drive a car. Right. But until I get behind the wheel and, oh, my gosh, that did a work. Hey, this feels pretty good. You know, now my brain can sort that information and make it an automatic process. So experience. And same thing with intimacy. If, you, if you've not had people in your life where you've been able to have positive relationships, the way you understand what that's all about is by finding somebody who has the capacity for that and interacting with them. And you know what the biggest complaint is when people uh, start hanging around somebody who's got a healthy background? What's that? This, person is, so, this person is so boring. There's absolutely no drama in this person's life. And they're just smooth and steady, you know, because, uh, you know, because, again, the drama distracts from the need to have closeness right there's that need there that's not being met and so what's getting shoved in there is is excitement or just intensity i should say right yeah. and I, i've talked about this probably maybe two three weeks ago some people just need chaos for their world to go well and, and it's because they don't know how to meet those needs other ways otherwise and so what they've learned it's like a little kid if you've got a little kid and you're ignoring them they're going to get a piece of you either in a positive way or in a negative way. And so right. like when you do parenting classes, you talk about, you need to give your kids special time. You need to give them some attention and then they won't need to pull it out of you by negative behaviors because, because they're right. going to get a chunk of you one way or the other. And so some people have grown up that that's the only way they know to get, uh, to connect with others is through that negative attention that chaos. Right. So I know we've got a little bit of time left, but just, I see that you wrote a, uh, you wrote, you're the author of three books, uh, Anxiety, Phobias, and Panic, Taking Charge and Conquering Fear, mm -hmm. Overcoming Anxiety from Short-Term to Long-Term Fixes, I mean, Short-Term Fixes to Long-Term Recovery, and Anger Taming the Beast. Right. And the new one. And the new one. What's the it's, new one? Uh, it's a Why You Feel the Way You Do. So it's why all about these emotions we're talking about. Oh, all these on Amazon? Any yeah, they're on Amazon, they're ebook, they're audiobook, uh, print book. So what is something that's a short-term fix uh, for overcoming anxiety that someone may need to hear? Wow. Uh, <laughs> I, I, maybe let me talk about uh, uh, worry, right? Uh, what we call the, the negative anticipation or the what-if thinking that people do. Uh, when people who are they worry a lot and they get really anxious about things coming up one of the things they do is something that we call emotional reasoning so right. um to use an extreme example people with a panic disorder one of the things they would worry about is passing out because they would hyperventilate sometimes and so i'd say so tell me what are the chances when you go to the store that you might pass out and they would say oh maybe 50 percent." and so then i would ask them so how many times you've passed out well i've never passed out right. in my life so based on reality the odds were low, but based on their emotional feeling, the odds were high. And so one of the things that people often do is they, they, they overestimate how likely something is to occur, especially with all the news media stuff that goes on around. So base your estimation on 
reality, your past experience and experience of other people that you know. Second thing is they will overestimate the awfulness of it. So again, with the passing out, how bad would it be if you pass out in a store, given no, no real harm is going to be to you? But their first response would be on a scale of 1 to 10 is probably a 15. Okay, so let's compare that to getting your arm cut off or, you know, your kid getting killed or having a wasting disease. Okay, now it becomes a 1 or a 2, right? It's very low on the scale. So that's the second thing that emotional reasoning does is it overestimates how awful, oh my gosh, this is going to happen. It's going to be the worst thing in the world. So being more realistic as to those things are important and then getting to the, the third step, which is what can I do about it uh, to prevent it and how could I manage it if it were to happen? Um, right. And again, those two steps, people who are emotional reasoners never get to because they're stuck in that circular question or circular thinking about, oh, my gosh, it's going to happen. It's going to be awful. But then you look at people who deal with adversity. Well, they automatically go through those steps. They do a realistic estimation and they say, well, I could do this. It'll probably prevent it. And if it were to happen, these are some things I could do to cope with it. And you can apply that to anything from uh you know, not doing well on a job interview to, uh, you know, failing to test at school or whatever. And uh, sometimes bad things do happen, but most of the time they're manageable. You know, there's most of the adversity we, we, we face in life is manageable. All right. So that's that's about it for the day. That's about it. I thank you for coming at all times. So where can they find you and reach you at if they wanted to talk more to you or see some more of your works? Uh, easiest way is through my website, ywhyyemotions.com. So yemotions.com has uh, uh, links to my books, to my to the uh, YouTube channel where I have a lot of stuff, a uh, few freebies up there. So yemotions.com. All right. Well, thank you for sitting down and, and chatting it up on Amsterdam Talk with us. And anytime you want to come back and let us know about overcoming anxieties and things like that, you're always welcome. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Okay. So next week, y'all, we're going to see you on Wednesday, but at a brand new time, 7 p.m. We're moving up earlier. Uh, it's getting colder and later, so we're moving up earlier next week. So uh, next week, I don't even have my calendar in front of me, but next week we have an influencer coming through and they want to talk about um, speaking in public, you know, anxieties you feel about speaking in public. Mm. So that's it. See you next week, next Wednesday, 7 p.m. Thank you, for Dr. Renault, for coming. Thank you. See you Thanks. next week. <laughs>